Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the February edition of The Compliance Life. This month I am featuring another director of trade compliance who now has her own consulting firm, Ellen Smith. I've known Ellen for quite some time. We were both in the Houston compliance community. And Ellen, once again, has a fascinating journey to and from the director's chair for trade compliance. She has a lot of experience in law firm work and other areas I think you will find fascinating on this journey in the compliance life. In this episode, Ellen Smith discusses her move in-house. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and they'll be right back with Valerie Charles on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode on The Compliance Life with Ellen Smith. Today, we're going to take up Ellen's in-house career. So, Ellen, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. This is so much fun. I appreciate you letting me tell my story. Wow. I almost heard a little Texas accent in there. We'll get to that later. Uh, we were, today, we're going to move, or rather in this episode, we're going to move to your in-house career. So, you were at an international uh, trade uh, law firm, and then you moved in-house. Could you tell us why you moved in-house and uh, what the move was? Sure. I was um, I I was working in Chicago, downtown Chicago, and living up north um, in Lake County, which is right at the Wisconsin Illinois border. And frankly, I was commuting, and and I had my second kid, and it it got hard to commute. Um, you know uh, that that distance um, and raise. I had two young children at the time, so I started looking and. Um, decided to make the change and had the opportunity to go in-house at Jockey International. Um, 
again, another international firm, uh, and Jockey was intrigued by my customs compliance experience from the law firm and my my trade experience. Um, they also happened to be in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which was about 15 minutes from my house, so that made it uh, that that made it easier for me as a young um, mother or a mother with young children at the time. Um, so, you know, that, that's the reason why I went in house and it was a good fit. It was a small legal department. Jockey's a privately held company. It's got a huge brand name. So people are always surprised that when I say that, um, it's a brand that's recognized around the world, but it's, it's based in Kenosha, Wisconsin and small legal team with, at the time there were three or four lawyers and, uh, you know, I ended up being eventually second sort of in command to to the general counsel, Mark Jaker, and it, a lot of great experience. They hired me as a customs compliance lawyer and a um, and I ran the social compliance or the corporate responsibility or social responsibility program at, at uh, Jockey. So making sure we weren't in any sweatshops and, and abiding by customs laws and security and, and everything else. So I can think of, I was trying to tick off in my head while you were talking, the number of product companies that are so ubiquitous. When you say the name of the company, you know what the product is. And obviously Kleenex is, in my mind, number one. But Jockey's right up there at number two or three. And when you say Jockey, I think everyone knows the products that they make and literally are famous worldwide for that. Um, and that continues literally to this day. The um, and, uh, close, uh, obviously close to the Canadian border with, uh, I would assume, issues around um, in, export into Canada and perhaps some import issues. But what I really wanted to ask was a couple of different things. One is what you, what you learned about a team structure and why that was so important and how even with a small legal department, that team structure facilitated literally a worldwide reach. And then two, you're one of the first people I've, I've come across who was doing CSR work in the first decade of, of this century. We may have called it something different, but you were doing the work that we now call ESG. And, and tell us a little bit about that, uh, both of those uh, topics. For the listeners that are probably a little older, our age or, or so, um, you'll remember the Kathy Gifford Guatemala issue um, where there was child labor and Kathy and Regis, I think Regis and Kathy, I think that's what it was, right? Um, Regis and Kathy, and, and she got called out for having child labor um, in Guatemala that was um, producing the, the clothing or the apparel that was under her name. And that hit the apparel industry in the 90s and um, the 90s and then, of course, onward. And the apparel industry had to respond and they had to uh, put in place their their corporate social responsibility programs. So um, Jockey was very involved with the AAFA, which is American Apparel and Footwear Association. And I still have some very good friends there. Um, and uh, they helped set up a program called RAP, which is world at the time it was Worldwide Responsible Apparel Production. Now it's um, the the acronym means uh, has a different um, association, but uh, it, it was a sort of group um, so that each brand wasn't going into a factory and, and applying their own rules to the factory. RAP gave a certification um, that was that was that could be accepted by brands. 
So uh, I had the the really great opportunity of in the corporate social responsibility space of learning that at Jockey. I didn't really know it before I went in there, um, but you know, there's so many uh, so many parallels with with the confined space that we know today, um, and like you said, at ESG as it's as it's coming about, and all the other industries that are having to pay attention to this, especially as we go in today. Um, with with what we know, uh, U.S. Customs is looking at um, with the the forced labor issues in China. So uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. I'm I'm so happy that I had that experience. My again, another great mentor that I have, Mark Jager. He was the general counsel at, at Jockey at the time. Um, Mark put in a, a he just had a really great team structure. Everybody um, sort of had their their responsibilities, but we all worked together because of the way he built the team. Um, and we could cross over and cross train each other and, and work um, towards that same, the, you know, whatever was the issue of the day. And, and there were a lot of different issues at, at Jockey um, as we went through because of because it was a well-known brand and because of the way we did business. Um, Mark also did a weekly team meeting with strategy meetings, sort of you know, again, what my, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, um, what my experience was at Salvi Shostak and Pritchard. And, um, you know, again, sort of strategizing what was on the plate and how we move forward. So uh, really understanding, you know, what sort of resources we needed um, and the various, um, with a really small legal department, how we would all come together to handle those, those issues of the day. Ellen, I've uh, talked to a couple of people who were either in-house legal or uh, compliance and at brands that are iconic in American business, and they certainly had pride uh, with that brand, but they said it also brought a level of pressure, and it brought a level of pressure that not only do we have to keep going, but we've been so successful, we have to maintain what the others before us have built and so that there really was, a, uh, I don't want to say esprit de corps, but really a feeling that, uh, you know, we are something special. Did, was there that feeling at Jockey uh, as well? Yeah, there sure was. I mean, Jockey, um, Jockey actually did a lot of private label stuff for other brands. So we weren't only just representing our brand, but brands like Tommy Hilfiger at the time and uh, Liz Claiborne, you know, another older brand. But we, we were producing um, apparel for those under our license uh, agreements for those brands as well. So there was a lot that, you know, a lot of pressure to, to really, you know, when, when we say if there's a compliance issue, we might end up on the front cover of the Wall Street Journal. Um, when you're talking about a brand, a well-known brand like Jockey, that's a big deal. And um, those are things that, that we're always, that we're all, we were always considering. In fact, we, we, we talked a lot, Mark and I talked a lot about, um, you know, really, there's corporate social responsibility, there's compliance, but really, at the end of the day, it's brand brand reputation management. And that's, that's what we were um, managing. Many of the listeners to this podcast uh, are not trade compliance uh, specialists. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what is a uh, U.S.-focused assessment? What is the process to go through it? Why is it so intense? And what did you really learn going through that process at Jockey? This is a fun story that I have, I think. Uh, I was at Jockey for two weeks. Um, and that 
I, I was sitting at a desk and I got, the phone rang on my desk and, you know, I was there two weeks. Nobody really knew who I was. So I pick up the phone and on the other end of the phone was a customs auditor. Her name was Cindy DeLeon. And she said, Cindy DeLeon with um, field auditor with, with U.S. Customs and Jockey's been, you're an importer of record. Jockey's been selected for a focused assessment. Um, and I said, okay, I don't know what that, I, I didn't say I don't know what that is, but it's like, okay, let me talk to my boss. <laughs> so hung up and went to Mark and said, uh, we just got a call for focused assessment. Um, and he's like, oh no. So you know, I knew at the time focus assessed, a focused assessment was at the time it was sort of new for, for US Customs. This is back in 2002, 2003 time area, time um, period. And um, what, what a focused assessment is, it's a full-blown customs audit. So it means customs has selected um, the importer of record, in this case it was Jockey International, to come in and do an audit. And they look at everything. It's, you know, full open kimono here and, and you have to come in and look at everything. So Cindy um, led the customs team. They came in to do the audit. It means, you know, all of our, we did, I think, I can't remember what the number was, our volumes, but we did a lot. I think maybe like 10,000 imports a year. Um, these are apparel imports, so textile and apparel with, with U.S. Customs. I think it's about 41% of the duties that are collected in the U.S. come from the textile and apparel industry. Um, and so it's a big deal. There's a lot of money involved. And Jockey had a really interesting supply chain model. This is the other thing I really learned at Jockey. And it was supply chain. I and it it really was going through this focused assessment where I learned so much about supply chain. Um, but Jockey, we 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 uh, had our own factories. We knit our own fabric um, in the U.S. and in Central America. We had our own factories where we sewed, um, where, where our products were sewn, and we also outsourced um, primarily in Asia. But at the time, we had all three of those sort of really interesting ways of, um, of, of manufacturing our, our products. Um, so there, and we used a whole lot of different ways to value those products. And that's what customs is interested in. Um, really, you know, making sure that we're declaring our goods um, the right way with our classifications, that we're valuing the goods the right way with the value that we apply when they come into the United States, particularly with related parties. Um, and then uh, uh, the country of origin. So if you're if you're knitting fabric in the United States and then you're sending it to Central America, to Costa Rica, for example, to be sewn, and then it comes back to the United States, what is the country of origin of that product? You know, there's there's some pretty um, some pretty specific rules that have to be applied, and it's it's really complicated in the textile and apparel industry. So. I got to jump in right away um, and learn all of that as we went through the focused assessment. And uh, it was a three-year process, but at the end of the day, we only had a $500 um, additional exposure that that um, we self-disclosed uh, self to customs. So it was a win for us at Jockey. Um, they told us we were doing everything the right way, and uh, essentially, and, and it was great. I also built a tremendous um, relationship and friendship with Cindy DeLeon, who eventually left customs, moved to Houston, Texas, and opened up her own um, consulting practice. And uh, Cindy and I, Cindy was one of my mentors. Um, I think it's safe to say when I decided to go out on my own. Um, I eventually moved to Houston, Texas too. So 
uh, we, we remain good friends. So Ellen, um, unfortunately, no, actually we're not near the end of our time because there's something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of the issues you had to deal with, uh, I believe, uh, with the Canadian officials was valuation. And that's something that uh, I had to deal with is in-house at Halliburton. And there's always a difference. How do you document the valuation uh, for uh, regulatory purposes? Yeah, we had, um, in fact, there's a the court case uh, for the jockey products being imported into, into Canada. Um, we had the privilege, I guess, of hosting the CBSA in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. CBSA is the Canada um, border, uh, the Canada Customs Group. So CBSA came and, and did an audit. Um, it was an audit focused on valuation. We used a lot of different valuation methods, um, but really it was the, uh, the internal um, transfer price between Jockey US and Jockey Canada that was the focus of that assessment. And when you have sister companies and you have that that transfer price that you're applying, whether I mean transfer prices usually um, is very related to tax, and the tax folks want to look at a transfer price uh, on the aggregate. Um, you know what is the the uh, uh, the profit that needs to move back and forth between between um, sister companies for tax reasons and customs looks at it on a transactional basis. So you got to find a way to make the two work and learned a whole lot about transfer pricing in, in the jockey model. There's a court case out there with um, Canada Customs on jockey. So if anybody's interested, you can go check it out and read it. Um, but it, it talks through the, the really intense um, transfer pricing methodologies of multinational companies and why that's so important. Well, in the Halliburton Legal Department, if you could say transfer pricing, you were an expert because you at least knew it was a word. So I completely get it. Ellen, now we are, unfortunately, at the end of our time for this episode, but we're going to have our segment of favorite adopted saying or sayings. So what do you have for us uh, from Jockey? Great. I love sharing these. Um, So... Mark Jager my, um, was, was general counsel at Jockey and again, another great mentor for me. And Mark had such a, a great way of expressing um, what he wanted people to do in sort of a soft manner. And he, he always used the word perhaps when he was talking about something and he'd say, well, perhaps we need to do it this way. And that, then he meant, you know, it was like, yeah, we're going to do it this way. But it wasn't like you're going to do it this way. It was perhaps we'll do it this way. And it's, it's just a soft way of, of really explaining what you need to have done. And, and I, I have adopted that. I use that to this day. And I, I just love that word now because of Mark. Um, my, my other favorite line from Jockey, and, and I, I do a lot of speaking engagements on trade issues. Um, and I always try and find a way to throw this in, even in my trainings that I do. Um, but this is actually a saying that I live by. And at Jockey, we had a motto, life is like underwear, change is good. And um, I love change. All my teams throughout my career have know that, you know, nothing is static in my world, that I'm always um, sort of moving things around and, and making sure we're delivering what's best for the client, whether it was an in-house client or, or now with my clients in my practice. But uh, I love that saying because I think it's so true. Change is good, and it's just like underwear. (laughs) 
Well, I wanted to thank you. This has been a ton of fun in this uh, episode two. I hope our listeners will join us for episode three because we're going to take a deep dive as Ellen moves to the great state of Texas and goes into one of the biggest messes in the energy company world that we saw and came out of it uh, just great. So uh, we're going to take that up in episode three. Ellen, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.